Acts 21, verse 7. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemy, where we greeted the brothers and sisters and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm, not read, I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Mason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. And the next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done amongst the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. And then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They've been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so do what we tell you. There are four men with us who've made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. And as for the Gentile believers, we've written to them our decision that they should abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men, purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he's brought Greeks into the temple and defied this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian in the city, with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him, ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul would be taken to the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. And the crowd that followed him kept shouting, get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? 
Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Sicilia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. And when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and sisters, listen now to my defence. Okay, we're on now. Sorry about that. Okay, the amazing race. Uh, who here watches the amazing race? Yes, it's kind of become our family TV, so we sit down, we love to watch as a family on a Friday night, and uh, we'll eat pizza and watch the amazing race. And MJ and Chelsea, I'm hoping are going to win. Don't tell me if you know the answer, if you know what the outcome of it all. I always, you know, we're still watching it, so please don't come and inform us of who wins. Do not do that. I will not be enjoying that whatsoever. I always find it difficult, uh, though, when we're watching The Amazing Race to kind of work out all the difference of, between the terminology. The girls, they somehow seem to get it, but there's roadblocks, there's fast-forwards, there's sabotage, there's, there's all sorts of different things that they come up against, and my girls are all over it. I, I kind of struggle uh, to be over those things. But it struck me the other night that The Amazing Race is a little bit like reading the Book of Acts. Okay, so every roadblock or, or fast-forward or sabotage that they encounter is a little bit like what we see here in the book of Acts. So when, when we watch The Amazing Race, what's, what's the question we ask? Will our team make it through this roadblock? Or will this be the one that somehow trips them up? And as we read through the book of Acts, we, we come across roadblocks and, and sabotages in the first century. And we ask the question, will this be the, the end of the spread of the gospel? How will the gospel reach the ends of the earth now? Because that is the big question that the book of Acts is asking us. Will the gospel reach the ends of the earth? It's actually set up for us all the way back at chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 8, this is Jesus' promise to the disciples. If you were with us last year, uh, you would have seen this. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so, and so what we see in the book of Acts is all through the first 20 chapters, we see the good news of Jesus and, and particularly this wonderful declaration that Jesus is the risen King and that salvation can be found in Him and in Him alone. That news is taken from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then outside of the boundaries of Israel to the Gentile nations. And so that's where we're at. Paul is about to go down to Jerusalem and we see why he's about to go down to Jerusalem in chapter 20. Back in chapter 20, if you have your Bibles, it's really great to have your Bibles open uh, this afternoon because we're going to be walking through these chapters and reading a fairly hefty chunk of Scripture but in chapter 20, verse 22, this is what he says to the Ephesian elders as he gets ready for his journey to Jerusalem. He says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying 
to the good news of God's grace. So this is, this is kind of where we find ourselves. Paul, compelled by the Spirit to go on to Jerusalem, and it's, he says it's not going to be smooth sailing. There's going to be roadblocks and sabotages and fast-forwards and, and, and obstacles to the gospel. And, and what we're going to do this afternoon is we're just going to work through each one of those roadblocks. Now, the thing about this is, you know, the thing that makes the, the Amazing Race really good, and the reason why I don't want you to tell me who wins the Amazing Race, is because you, you don't know the end. You don't know the ending. You don't know who's going to get there. You don't know whether your team is going to be eliminated, whether they're going to, you know, it's going to be a non-elimination a non round, or whether they're going to get sabotaged and can't get through the next round, or whatever it might be. You don't know the ending, right? And so that's what makes it really, really good. We can't... We kind of know the ending because the gospel made it to Newcastle, right? It made it to the ends of the earth. You can't get much further away from Israel than, than Newcastle. And so we, we kind of have a sense of where this is going. We have an idea of where this is going to end. And so what I want you to do, as we look at each of the roadblocks, I want you to imagine that this is the first time you've heard it, that this is the first time you've read the book of Acts, and, or, or, or that you're actually there in the first century and you're wondering, will the gospel actually reach its next destination? And we're going to work through each one of those roadblocks. The first roadblock we see is actually the people of God. On his journey to Jerusalem, Paul stops and he visits a whole bunch of Christians at different places. And along the way, Paul is warned two times through the work of the Holy Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem. So have a look in verse 3. This is what happens. We landed at Tyre where our ship was up to unload its cargo. We sought out the disciples there and stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When it was time to leave, we left and continued on our way. Right? The second incident is brought through the, the prophet Agabus in verse 10. After we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, coming over to us. He took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and his feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul, do not go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm I'm ready not only to be bound, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Now, what's going on with that? What's going on there? Is Paul disobeying the Holy Spirit here as he kind of presses on to Jerusalem, ignores the prophecy? Or is this a mistake that the Holy Spirit makes? Because back in chapter 20, remember, Paul was compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Well, I think what we see here is the difference between prediction and prohibition. Even as Paul was compelled by the Spirit in chapter 20 to go to Jerusalem, he knew that persecution awaited him. And so, as Agabus and, and, and some of the other Christian brothers and sisters urge Paul not to go, I think what they're doing is bringing their own human wisdom to the knowledge that Paul will be imprisoned and bound. And so it's tricky, isn't it? I don't think there's any sense here in which they're doing the wrong thing. 
whether they're disobeying the Holy Spirit or anything like that, and yet their advice is very different from Paul's personal conviction that the Spirit has urged him to go to Jerusalem. Now, I'm not going to try and resolve this in any way, I'm just going to let it sit there for you. You can talk about it after the service if you're still a little bit confused or you want further clarification. Have a chat amongst yourselves. But the real hurdle is actually when he arrives in Jerusalem. So pick it up in verse 17. Have a look there in verse 17. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported them in great detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, See, brother, how many, of the th- how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood and from the meat of strangled animals and from sexual immorality. Now again, what's going on here? But before we go any further, can I just say, it's really weird talking to a bunch of masks. And so I can't tell whether you're engaged in this at all. So try and smile with your eyes. Okay, if you like what I'm saying, just try and smile with your eyes. That would really help. That would be fantastic. It seems that the Jewish Christians here have heard rumours about what Paul's been teaching. And they've heard that Paul teaches them to dump their Jewish traditions and just move on. And so in order to win favour with these Jewish Christians, Paul agrees to go through some purification rites. He agrees to pay the the expenses of four others who are going to get their head shaved. I've got to say, that's not a lot of money. It doesn't cost a lot of money to get your head shaved. I can do it for you if you need it done. Uh, And the question here as Paul joins them is, is Paul compromising the gospel? And I don't think he is. James and Paul, we see, are aligned theologically. They both believe in salvation by grace. And so as Paul and the others actually report uh, that the Gentiles have come to faith in Jesus, they don't protest, okay? They They don't protest that fact, but it actually says they've praised God. So what was the issue? Well, the issue seems to concern culture, ceremony and tradition. The Christian Jews in Jerusalem they still lived this life that looked and felt very Jewish. And you can imagine how difficult that would have been to give up. All of their lives, they've gone to the temple, and the temple was the very centre of their life. And they continue to live that way while they follow Jesus. And so I think what we have here is a concession from Paul in the realm of practice. He willingly lives like a Jew in order to love and to care for and to, and those who are traditionally Jewish. Now, why is he willing to do that? Well, it's because he has this very single-minded approach to life. Come back to that verse in chapter 20, chapter 20, verse 22. 
He says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. See, Paul regularly, uh, throughout the Bible, he adapts and he changes his practices so he can speak about Jesus. He lives like a Jew when that matters to the Jewish people. He lives like a Gentile when he's among the Gentiles. He will do anything in order to be able to have an audience, a forum to speak about Jesus in. But he will be uncompromising if he thinks the gospel message is being polluted. What matters to him is an opportunity to preach about Jesus. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but I thought it was wonderful having Chris and Karen Webb here the other week. And, and this is the kind of wrestle that they have in their context. They, they work in an in indigenous culture uh, where, where, their, where their culture is, and practice is thick and it kind of pervades all of life. So as they preach the gospel into that context, uh, how do you negotiate that? What aspects of culture and tradition can you keep without compromising people's faith in Jesus? It's really tricky. As they, and you can see it's really tricky as they, as they wrestle with that. I reckon it's hard for us here in Newcastle to see our cultural blind spots because we're in the culture. It's much easier to see people's culture when you're outside of that culture, but we're in the culture, right? And I wonder whether Christians from other parts of the globe might feel awkward as they step into our church or our, into, into the Christian world in, here in Newcastle and they might feel awkward about our prosperity or the way we dress or how much we drink or our view of family and time or how we do church or our, our view of hospitality and how we do that or even just how we do church here on a Sunday. Where are we sinning? Where are we wrestling with cultural norms that shape our practice? It's really tricky, isn't it? But what we see here is that as the gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth, tradition and cultural norms are the things that Paul holds very loosely to. What he clings to is the good news of Jesus. And he will do whatever it takes to win an audience for that gospel message to be spoken into. So that's the first hurdle. The second hurdle... Uh, is the riot in the city. Before he even gets an opportunity to speak to the Jewish Christians, uh, this is what happens. Verse 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the, Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law, and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, in the, the, the Ephesian in the city with Paul, and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, News reached the commander of the Roman troops of the whole city of Jerusalem, that the whole city of Jerusalem was in uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two cha chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd shouted one thing and another and, 
and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. When Paul had reached the steps, of the, viol- the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by soldiers. The crowd that kept fo- followed shouted, kept shouting, get rid of him. So he's in the middle of this seven-day purification ceremony and a riot breaks out. And the Jewish people, not the Jewish Christians, but the Jewish people are literally trying to kill him. When a Roman commander turns up with his soldiers and steps in and takes control of the situation. Now, what does Paul make of this whole situation? I would go into my shell, but remarkably, after being beaten, Paul then asks for an opportunity to be able to speak to the crowd. And we're not going to get to look at it tonight, but in chapter 22, he actually shares his testimony. Um, He shares what he was like before Jesus He shares how Jesus changed his life, how Jesus saved him. And then he shares what Jesus is like now, what what Paul is like now because of Jesus. But it ends up, it actually flares up the situation all over again. Namely because one of the things that Paul claims is that God has sent him to preach the good news to the Gentiles, which is highly offensive, highly offensive to the Jewish people who were hostile to the Gentiles. They would not even eat with the Gentile people. And the crowd begin to start calling again for Paul to be killed. And as a result, he's thrown into the barracks, ready to be whipped, ready to be flogged, interrogated. And so you'd think this is a major hurdle, right? This is a hurdle, a, a, a roadblock to the gospel reaching the very ends of the earth. Suddenly you have Paul who is the apostle to the Gentiles, apostle, not the apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles, and he's been beaten by the Jews and thrown into prison. And the question this passage keeps asking is, how is the gospel going to reach the ends of the earth? Well, have a look what happens next. Verse 25, chapter 22 we're in, verse 25. As they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who has even been found guilty? When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you you going to do, he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realised that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Now this is really interesting, isn't it? First in these chapters, what we see is we see Paul lean into his Jewish heritage for the sake of the gospel, so he can have this audience with the Jewish Christian people. But now he actually leans into his Roman citizenship. What he, what he does here is very shrewd. He knows the law. He knows that the law says you can't flog a Roman citizen without a fair trial. And so he leans into that and he claims his Roman heritage so that he doesn't get whipped and beaten and treated unfairly. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Paul is a very shrewd gospel operator. At one moment he's leaning into his Jewishness into the customs of the, and the traditions of the Jewish people so he might be received well in that context 
The next moment, he's a full-blown Roman citizen taking full advantage of the legal system in Rome. And for now, Paul sits under the protection of Rome. He's in chains, yes, he's imprisoned, yes, but the alternative at this point is death by beating. Watch what happens in the third roadblock, in the Sanhedrin. Because the Roman commander ends up realising he has no issue with Paul whatsoever, he actually hands him over to the Jewish legal system. Have a look in chapter 23, verse 1. It says there, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered that those standing near Paul should strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realise that he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I'm a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. So again, Paul leans into his Jewishness and, he, and in fact into the fact he's a Pharisee and he says, brothers, I'm one of you. I'm a Pharisee. In fact, I come from this long line of Pharisees. Now, why does he do that? Well, we know that Paul doesn't care at all about being a Pharisee. In Philippians, this is what he says. Philippians chapter 3 If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul doesn't lean into his Pharisaism to make much of himself. He considers it rubbish compared to the greatness of knowing Christ. But he knew that the Pharisees would side with him if he could align himself with them. And so what he does is he aligns himself not, with just, not just with the title, but, but with, with the doctrine of the resurrection. Because the Pharisees believed in this future resurrection and in a spiritual, supernatural world, but the Sadducees didn't. And so there's this division that takes place in the court of law. And in verse 9, this is what happens. There was a great uproar. Some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn into pieces. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. And so all of a sudden, you've got the Pharisees and they're actually on Paul's side. They're now claiming they find nothing wrong with this guy. 
And I'm not sure if we can really know what Paul was hoping to achieve out of this, but they end up arguing so vigorously with one another that the commander of the Roman army has to go in again, send the troops in again, in order to get Paul because he was afraid that he would actually be ripped in two. Imagine that, being ripped in two by two groups of people. And so Paul never makes it past the Jewish law courts, even though he's innocent. He's taken back into captivity, he's under Roman guard, because even though he should have been freed, it was too dangerous for him to be freed. Surely this is the end of the road for the gospel, right? Well, as I said before, we kind of know the the end of the story, don't we? We kind of know that the gospel does actually reach the ends of the earth. So what do we... What do we take away from all of this? Well, what's plain and clear to us as we read through all of this is that Paul is shrewd, isn't he? In his dealings with the Jews and with the Gentiles, but his shrewdness was about creating opportunities for the gospel to be heard. And Paul took every opportunity to preach Christ. And he does it wisely. He testifies to the Jewish people and shares his story about how Jesus has rescued him. That's worth reading in chapter 22. Then later he stands before the Pharisees and the Sadducees and again testifies to the hope he has in Jesus. These are moments and opportunities for the gospel story to be told. He somehow has the presence of mind in the middle of persecution, in the middle of being ripped in two, he has the presence of mind to bring Jesus into the frame. So we see he's shrewd, we also see his courage, right? Even before he gets to Jerusalem, he knows that hardships are waiting. But he goes anyway. Paul is willing to endure anything for the sake of seeing people saved. And so we could easily end today by thinking about how we ought to be shrewd with gospel opportunities and courageous in sharing the good news of Jesus, right? And that would be a good thing to do. But, but I think what Luke, the author of Acts, really wants us to see here is how God is taking the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And when we start to look for God's activity in all of this, what we see is God working through an unlikely saviour in these chapters. And the unlikely saviour is Rome. When the Jews try to kill Paul, who, who saves him, who rescues him? It's the Roman commander and the troops. When Paul speaks to the crowd and they're flared up again, who rescues him, who saves him? It's Rome. When he's about to be flogged by a Roman guard, what saves him? Well, it's the laws of Rome that save him. When he speaks in the Sanhedrin, what saves him? Well, the Romans step in again to rescue him from being torn in two. So so we read this and what we see is we see sabotages and obstacles and roadblocks and hurdles And then we look at Paul and we see, well, we see his courage and his shrewdness and we see a man who will take any opportunity to preach Christ. What we don't automatically see is God's hand in all of this. Everything that happens in these chapters was God's plan all along. And we know it was God's plan because the Holy Spirit spoke into it. He compelled Paul to go to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit then warned Paul and told the brothers and sisters in those regions, in Tyre and through Agabus, 
that Paul was about to be persecuted, bound, captive. Then as he goes down to Jerusalem, we, we, we actually see all of that take place. And so we wonder to ourselves, we wonder, well, maybe Paul would have been better off listening to his friends. Given the riots and the floggings and the Sanhedrin, maybe, maybe what Paul should have done in order for the gospel to continue to go to the very ends of the earth, maybe what Paul should have done is actually listen to his friends. But then we read Acts chapter 23, verse 10. Come, come to Acts chapter 23, verse 10. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid that Paul would be torn into pieces. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This was God's plan all the way, all along. God rescues Paul from the hands of the Jews through this Roman commander. And Rome is carrying out the will of God here. Isn't that remarkable? The commander who acts in self-interest, right? He's self-interested at this point. He's ensuring peace. He's making sure that riots aren't taking place in the city that he's over. Unwittingly, he's doing the work of God. He's achieving the plans and purposes of God. And specifically, God through Rome is ensuring that the gospel will reach the very ends of the earth. God's crazy plan all along was to take the gospel to Rome through a prisoner called Paul. Isn't that amazing? The God we meet here in these chapters, friends, is not uninvolved in our world. He's not a dispassionate God, a hands-off God, who sits and watches the world make a mess of itself. But the God we meet here is a God who speaks through the Holy Spirit. We meet a God who superintends the rescue of his servant Paul time and time again. We meet a God who is intimately involved in ensuring that his plans and purposes will actually be achieved in his world. And at this point, God has a particular purpose in mind, a particular mission in mind. And the mission is to bring the good news of Jesus to the ears of people across the globe. So maybe you're here today and you haven't yet placed your trust in Jesus for salvation. Friends, this is great news. All that we read here, right, in chapters 21 to 23 that took place in the first century, all of that we read here, this happened so that you could hear the wonderful news that Jesus died the death that you deserve and that salvation is available. Forgiveness is free if you're willing to trust in the risen King. Can I say, if you haven't done that yet, don't let another day go by without jumping on that offer of salvation. But, it, but, but maybe you've been a Christian for a little while now and you know these things. You know that God intended the, the news of Jesus to reach the very ends of the earth. You know that this is what the book of Acts is all about and you know that God decided and then made it happen, yeah? And so the question for us is, do we live a life that reflects that? 
Do we live a life that acknowledges that God is on mission in his world, in this world, in Newcastle? And that, and that he can actually work through ordinary and extraordinary circumstances of people just like you and I. Does our life reflect the fact that God is intimately involved in ensuring the, that his plans and purposes are achieved right here in Newcastle? Because when we do recognise that, when we see that, that, that rebukes my prayerless life here. Yeah? I've been rebuked by that this week. Why wouldn't I be praying for my city and my friends and my kids and my kids' friends when, when God can take the gospel to Rome through a man in chains? It actually rebukes my hesitancy to drive my kids and my kids' friends and to take time out and to make that possible to get them to rush or to youth on a Friday night because it's a little bit inconvenient for our family circumstances. It rebukes my tendency to make up God's mind for him. You ever done that? By not inviting my friends to church. Ah, they'll probably say no. So I won't ask them and I'll just keep the friendship. No, we ought to be praying and inviting. Invite people to church or, or, or to the life series or to the fatherhood night coming up. We're going to hear a little bit about that in a minute. Even, even if they would say that they're a Christian but they're not hooked into a, into a local church, invite them along. We don't want to take people when they're well hooked into their local church. That's not what we want to do. But, but if they aren't, if they aren't going to church, then invite them. Invite them to come and join us so that they can thrive as Christians and grow in their maturity and their love for Jesus. Be part of their joining story. Help them to be part of Jesus' story right here in Newcastle. And I've got to say, being reminded that God is not a dispassionate, hands-off God who just watches the world go by watches the world make a mess of itself, I have found personally so helpful when COVID blows up all of our plans again in life, our plans as a church in particular. But here's the thing. God can even use COVID to make the gospel grow. God can use whatever he wants in this world to make the gospel grow. And I pray that he would use us and that he might use you. Why don't I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the wonderful news that you are not a dispassionate, hands-off God, but you are intimately involved in your creation. And in particular, intimately involved in ensuring that your mission of making Jesus known to the very ends of the earth. We thank you that you are in control of all of those things. And Father, we pray that you might use us. We pray that you might bump us out of our prayerlessness, out of our hesitancy to make sacrifices, out of our tendency to make up people's minds for them 
Help us to be a people who invite people, speak about Jesus. Give us the opportunity, Lord, to be part of people's story as they find their hope and their trust in Jesus. We thank you for these chapters in the book of Acts. Amen.